It's the Ruby on Rails podcast, April 2009, show number 99. I was in Las Vegas last week at RailsConf and recorded a few interviews. RailsConf 2009, talking to Yehuda Katz, well-known around all kinds of conferences, worked on uh, many projects, jQuery, Merb, and now Rails 3. So Merb was uh, this uh, big thing you used traveled the the world uh talking about how bad rails was and how merv was going to improve it but now here you are part of the rails core team have you sold out no actually what's really interesting is that basically all the work that we did to sell merv apparently convinced the rails guys so um basically the ideas that we had on merv were not particularly conflicting they were just uh complimentary so we said things like we should have a, a higher focus on performance i don't think anyone on the rails core team ever said it's great rails should be as slow as possible they just said this is not necessarily something that we feel is an uh, important horse in the race right now and uh what we basically did was show that some people care about that and the rails core teams uh in january or december said you know what we're sold those things seem like important if you want to do that go for it so um and other things like agnosticism more modularity are all things that it looks like we basically just proved out the idea dhh always says that he wants people to to basically prove out ideas not just come up with ideas in an ivory tower and i think merb was a good a way for us to prove out a bunch of ideas that eventually dhh looked at and other members of the rails core team looked at and said you know what you have a point people are using it people seem to care let's get that into rails now I've been impressed at the flexibility of the core team. Oftentimes, especially Hanmeier Hansen, seems very opinionated. I mean, that's in the slogan of the framework, being opinionated, and yet willing to change course to adopt some kinds of new ideas. I know at RailsConf Europe, like a, a year and a half ago, they hated Git. I, I was in a conversation. I wasn't really talking to them, but, they, you know... The, couple rails core members they were like why would anyone use git and then you know a couple months later yes okay we can see the features now it's on git i you know i guess i have to hand it to them to be able to change their mind sometimes in american politics we think about you know a flip-flopper and that that's bad but you know if if you find something better why not change your mind do it a, a different way do it a better way what kind of uh how how are rails and merb you know now with you, the things you've learned from merb how is that going to change? You've been blogging about that, I know, but you know, give give us a summary. What uh, are you think the, the most important things that come out of Merb that, that will be in Rails three? So I, there's a couple of things that are really salient. Uh, one of them is just evidence that you could run a Rails a Ruby framework that's like Rails, roughly equivalent feature set to Rails, but also really fast. So basically proving that it's possible for Rails to be performant. So now we have to go make it so, but the proof is in the pudding, basically, as they say. Um, making it possible to have a really solid core stack, like we ship with all these features, but still be able to swap out ORMs, testing frameworks, JavaScript libraries. David talked about some of that this morning with the JavaScript libraries. But basically showing that it doesn't necessarily damage the ability of the default framework to be really solid and good and uh, the, the burger at Burger King, but... Uh, also be able to have it your way without damaging the guys who want the default stack. So I think that's probably another really, really big deal. And uh, just in general, I think a fresh set of eyes on the Rails code base will help. So this is not so much like an idea of Merb as it is a lot of things, a lot of people who have been doing Rails for a long time kind of had these corners of Rails where they said, oh, I don't want to go anywhere near there, that's scary. And um, tr- sometimes treated it like a black box when they were adding new features. And um, Carl and I 
I think have brought new energy into re-examining all corners of Rails uh, to improve the code quality, to rewrite small parts of it, uh, improve the decoupling. So that's pretty much what I spent the first two months of is basically finding parts of Rails like where Action Controller and Action View were coupled and decouple them. So now we can actually more easily write, redo parts of Rails in a smaller way without having to do what DHH didn't want to do, which is the big rewrite. So we don't have to rewrite all Rails because we've now made Rails a bunch of smaller pieces that are easier to take on without insanity. So, yeah. One of the things, this is an opportunity for me to air all my grievances about MERB. Uh, one of the things I didn't appreciate about Rails until I tried to use MERB was the fact that things are are fairly dependent on each other. And yeah, you have to use Active Record. Well, you don't have to, but but if you do, then it it works. And often with uh, trying to wire in Data Mapper, which is a great idea, but a separate team is maintaining it, and it doesn't necessarily sync with with ver- releases of the uh, web framework. With Rails, is there going to be any kind of coordination to now if it's being a lot more flexible to to tell people, okay, Data Mapper hit for a you know a solid release right around the time of Rails 3 so that we can count on these features and, and not have those change at the last moment. Is there any kind of coordination between all the, those teams? So, of course, uh, Rails itself, which includes Active Record, Active Resource, Active Model, uh, Action Mailer, all this, these components are going to continue to be maintained by a core team. This is something David felt strongly about, like you feel strongly about, was to make sure that that didn't go away at all. Um, so that's key. And then in terms of uh, working with other uh, component authors like Data Mapper, like SQL, um, like jQuery, etc. Uh, I personally am going to bring a much stronger emphasis on that, on making sure that we spend some time in the run-up towards a release. So Rails actually has a pretty nice release candidate process. You usually see like a month or two of release candidate right. time. So that that's the right time, in my view, to go out and make sure all the plugin authors are on, are ready to go. At the same time, Rails is ready to go. Make sure that other components that people might want to use with Rails are ready to go. Up until now, it's kind of been up to testing frameworks, JavaScript libraries. Um, ORMs to sort of notice that there was a release candidate and make sure they were synced up. Um, I'm personally going to be spending a lot more time during that period going out and trying to make sure everything's solid, submitting my own patches if I have to. And um, I think other members of the core team feel the same way, but don't want to speak for them. I think that's also the case for um, other authors as well. And I know that um, Data Mapper is focusing a little more heavily on trying to maintain compatibility going forward and also get their uh, um, their I guess standard library that's separate from the core uh, into a uh, form that will uh, allow DM core to be more modular and fit in with uh, existing libraries a little better. Another thing that I thought I would mention uh, that was I just reminded is that uh, active support is going to be we're specifically targeting the idea that people can use active support without having to be writing their own libraries. Right now, active support is a bit or right, not it used in two three. It's sort of an interconnected pile of spaghetti, and uh, Jeremy has done a great job over the past couple of weeks. Disconnecting it, making it really, as David said this morning, cherry pickable. And obviously, we're going to have to wait until people start using it and cherry picking, and then being like, "Hey, you said it was cherry pickable, but I can't use this without that." And um, let the community have a conversation about it. But one of the hard parts uh, for interoperability is just that people right now don't feel like they could depend on parts of Rails. They feel like they have to make their own because Rails is too heavy. So, in general, making it easier to depend on parts of Rails controller, parts of Rails uh, actor support, parts of whatever mailing support. You know, if someone wants mailing support and they also plan to interoperate with Rails, why can't they use what Rails ships with? Um, 
all that is basically something that we're trying to work on and have made good progress on. It's an interesting step to have a new feature of Rails be that you don't have to use it. You can use a metal and skip Rails altogether. You can use different ORM. Or, you know, I have to say, at least in recent releases of Rails, it's pretty fast if you don't, if you, you know, remove all the active record, uh, you know, in your config and stuff like that. I built a, a little app that just uh, needed a little message queue, and it it was pretty fast. So, it's, you know, it's, I'm looking forward to seeing even what you guys do even further with that. One final thing. Another uh, project you've criticized is Rake. You built a whole new thing called Thor, and uh, but Rails is definitely very tied into that, and many people use that extensively. Is Thor going to going to have any influence? Is there going to be inter- inter- interoperability there, or uh, has that project kind of gone on hold? So, Thor's not on hold. I'm actually working on releasing a 1.0 soonish, uh, definitely in the plans. Um, I never criticize Rake. Um, I criticize Rake for certain types of tasks. Among those types of tasks are tasks that Rails uses, so yes. Um, my specific concern with, with Rake is just that it seems to uh, recreate notions of things like namespaces and methods that we already have just fine in Ruby. Um, on the other hand, it's a very useful DSL for cases where you actually need dependencies like if a, if it's a very good replacement for make, right? You want to be able to say, I only want to have to rebuild this file if it's not already built, and then I, this file depends on this file existing. That's all right. That's race. So rake is really good for make. Um, I definitely see why people use it as uh, for small scripts and stuff like that. Um, what I like about Thor is that it makes it's basically like a Rails controller for command line operations. So you get you know, a method that wires up very nicely to a command, and then it's very easy to add uh, command line options and stuff like that. So I think it's probably worth me talking to um, Jim about what we can do maybe to... I don't want it to be... It doesn't need to be a competition, right? So I, it would be pretty easy to write Rake on top of Thor, and it would be pretty easy to write Thor on top of Rake, actually. So... Um, I, I obviously Thor is not going to be the thing that Rails uses. Rake is. Um, I would I would say it's more complicated than your question implied, and I want people to be using Thor more for if they built if they were going to build the binary like the Merb binary really could be a Thor task because it has a lot of options. Um, there's a bunch of different commands. Uh, I would easily imagine if I was going to build Git in Ruby, building the Git binary on top of Thor. Right, it's sort of for that. It's not for you know rake db migrate. Rake is just fine for that. But uh, if you have a, a lot of different options and you want to be able to support a lot of different things and maybe shared logic, you want it to be cla- like a class, then Thor is your man. Well, great. Uh, definitely only scratch the surface of all the projects and things you've worked on, but uh, very interesting. You're going to be at quite a few different conferences coming up as you do what Washington D.C. Uh, Ruby, uh, Ruby, future Ruby. You're going to be at that. A couple other ones. So uh, find Yehuda. Absolutely. Yeah, I'll be. I'm currently at almost all conferences, and I'm always happy to chat with anybody. So find me, talk to me. So RailsCom 2009, talking to Ed Allen. Tell us what you do and what you use Rails for. Uh, well, I'm programming for the uh, uh, DOE's Joint Genome Institute, uh, work for uh, Lawrence Berkeley Lab there, and um, 
we're uh, using Rails for a bunch of our um, apps for uh, scientists and uh, you know, uh, genomics administrators at the lab to uh, take in uh, DNA sequencing proposals for green energy and to um, uh, basically you know, do the paperwork for processing, getting in DNA or uh, biological material samples in, uh, getting them fed into the sequencers. Um, the place is uh, basically a very large DNA sequencing factory that uh, is uh, doing an awful lot of genomic stuff. So is there other software out there that, that didn't work and you said, decided to customize, or you needed something very specific to what were the processes you were doing? Um, it's just that uh, rapid application development fit pretty well. We have... Uh, a lot of stuff that we want to be developing quickly, and we have a small user community, so we don't have scaling issues. So, you know, Rails works very easily and nicely in that kind of environment. So do you spend full-time, part-time? Do you have other developers working on a project? What, what's the scope of that? Um, I'm in a group of about a half a dozen. We've got three of us doing the proposals app I'm on right now. Um, and we've got uh, a couple of these um, sort of handle the paperwork apps going, and uh, there's another developer who's doing an educational app there who is uh, basically tying in um, college students so they can kind of crowdsource uh, uh, genome annotation, give biology students a uh, first hands-on chance at uh, you know, you know, doing some real science. And, um, you know, they're looking at expanding that out to high schools, uh, you know, next year, maybe maybe the year after. Nice. That sounds like it'd be a really educational experience for them, and maybe also the, what they come up with would be contributed to the rest of the projects that are happening also. Yeah, yeah, the data they contribute, again, and it will end up on the web for, you know, scientists to use. It's, it's real stuff, and they'll be doing real work. Well, fun to hear about. Thanks. Sure. Thank you. RailsConf 2009, it's Joe Fiorini, one of the winners of Rails Rumble. What was your app? Uh, we developed an app called Meet in Between Us. It's a, uh, just a micro app to find a, you put in your address, a couple friends, um, some coworkers or whatever, and find a place to meet in between all of you. Seems like we could use a uh, micro version of that for this conference so people can <laughs> find each other in the conference hall. Yeah, it's, uh, it's pretty crazy. There's a lot of people here. <laughs> so what, what have you gotten out of RailsConf so far? Um, man, I really enjoyed uh, Chris Wanstra's keynote this morning talking about, uh, talking about just how kind of how code brings us together and uh, how uh, being busy does not necessarily mean being good. And, uh, you know, working on working on good code and just doing stuff because you love it is what really makes you good and uh, i really liked hearing that he's i appreciate that he often posts the full text of his lectures online i've read a number of his his talks at other conferences and uh i guess that's a sign of a great talk if you can just read it and get quite a bit out of it it's not even the the presentation that the content is valuable yeah yeah i uh I love reading over. I, I love that he posts them on Gist of all places, too. <laughs> so, Rails Rumble, you're talking about that tomorrow. 
with a couple other people. Oh, Give us a preview today. today. What kind of yeah. a preview? Um, so it's it's going to be a four person panel. Um, some other people who have won, um, and just kind of answering some questions about how we develop the apps in forty eight hours. Um, what is it? What sort of tools do we use? What sort of processes do we use? Um, there'll be I think there'll be a pretty good conversation on testing um, in a forty uh, eight hour time frame. Um, so I think there'll be some good some good discussion coming out of it. Sounds great. Well, thanks for talking. Thank you. So RailsConf talking to Stephen Balakoff of Bluebox. You got a new software as a service type hosted memcached service. What what's up with that? Well, uh, we found that uh, I guess in our in our environment. Um, we can make everything highly available except memcache right now. And uh, see, Gear 6 has this great product that does memcache as a high availability service, as far as a high availability thing. And what we're going to be, we're partnering with them to actually uh, add features to their product to make it so that in a hosting environment like ours is, um, we can easily resell this to all of our customers at a reduced rate so that they can get highly available memcache service uh, for less than what you would have to pay for one of these appliances or these, a pair of these appliances yourself and uh, at less than what you would have to do to upgrade your hardware to just do more memcache. So it's actually going to be a, a, a really good thing for our customers to be able to take advantage of it because memcache is already part of every Rails deploy pretty much. So this is lim- people who aren't already hosted at Blue Box couldn't use this. This isn't something they're going to use uh, over the web. This would be locally to people who are already on on your services. That's that's correct. Right now, I imagine Gear Six is probably going to look to partner with other companies as well once we've developed these features uh, to be able to offer it. Part of the reason for that is that Memcache is uh, very sensitive to latency on the network. Right. So if you aren't very local to us, it doesn't make sense to use our service that way. That and the memcache protocol itself has no uh, encryption or authentication. Yep. So running it over the Internet is probably not such a good idea. You could potentially do it via a tunnel of some sort, which does the encryption and authentication for you. But that's just going to increase your latency, which is a bad thing with memcache. Now, what uh, I'm not that familiar with, what, what does this special hardware do or the, the software? Does it provide some kind of redundancy for memcached or just make, make it more stable while it is running? Yeah, uh, the, the Gear 6 people could actually tell you more about it than I can. But in any case, um, yes, it actually provides data redundancy in the sense that you have two appliances on your network, which uh, will then keep a, a store of the entire memcache on each one of them. Then if there's any hardware issues or network issues between the two, um, if one of them goes down, the other one automatically takes over the IPs from the other one, and you've already got your entire memcache still there populated and running. So it's really nice because uh, memcache is mostly used to reduce the amount of, of processing you have to do for individual pages and for database queries and whatnot. And so if you actually were to lose your memcache and even bring it back again afterward, if your memcache is empty, um, that you're still going to have that hit right when that happens. And you don't get that with this product, and that's what's really cool about it. Oh, sounds impressive. As you said, yeah, everybody's using memcache, and that's definitely a big part of it, and uh, so definitely worthwhile to be able to check out other services that would enhance that. Mm-hmm. Thanks. Yeah, thank you very much. The Rails Podcast is sponsored by Peep Code Screencasts. Got a new screencast dropping sometime in the next week on Mac Ruby. Great way to develop desktop Mac applications with native speed. Check it out at peepcode.com.